This is Ringtones. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of the All Boxing No Bullshit Podcast. I'm your host and part-time lover, Jason Langendorf. And I say that because, yes, I, I have ghosted you for a bit, and, and I'm sorry for that, baby. I promise. It, it was, wasn't you, it was me. Uh, truthfully, I, I am hoping to get the podcast back on a more regular schedule. I know I've said that before. But I mean it this time, baby. I mean it. Uh, as my apology gift to you in the meantime, we have what I think may be our best guest yet. And I'm, I, I do mean that, uh, truthfully. Today I spoke to Kaylee Reese, the women's super lightweight title holder and burgeoning movie star. Now, after a nine-month layoff, Reese is back in the ring on Friday, August 20th at the Siquan Casino Resort in El Cajon, California, in a defense against Diana Prazak. This will be just the second fight in two years for Reese, who has been keeping herself busy with other endeavors, uh, including helping putting the finishing touches on Catch the Fair One. Uh, it's a film she co-wrote and stars in that tells the story of a Native American boxer who goes in search of her missing sister and in the process winds up crossing a human trafficking ring. Um, there's a fair amount of autobiographical material in there and it's a subject that that resonates deeply with Reese who has roots with the Seekonk Wampanoag tribe as well as the African nation of Cape Verde. At age 34 Reese says she's got plenty of fight left in her and we're going to get into that we'll we'll talk about that with her and a lot more right now. Hey how are you? Good very good how you doing today? I'm doing good. Welcome to uh, Ringtones. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, let's jump right in. So we're, we're talking uh, a little less than a week out from uh, a defense of your super lightweight title against Diana Prozac. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling heading into the fight? I'm feeling great, man. This has been such a, an intense camp in a good way. Um, we've been in camp since May because um, we knew we were going to fight. And when I found out I was fighting Diana Prozac, I was elated and excited because I love the good fights and I watched her fight, um, you know, as I was going through the rankings and I'm just really, really excited to finally be able to defend a world title that I have. (laughs) (laughs) This is the first time um, I had three world titles at middleweight and I didn't defend any of them um, fairly. Basically I didn't have any promoter or any management. Um, I did defend the WBC, but I got told to go to Germany and defend it. Um, so that's another story, but I'm very excited to be able to defend this world title and fight and unify for the IBO. How did it come together then? You say, you know, you didn't have management or promotion. Like what, what, what changed along the way? Well, um, for most of my career, you know, I was just, you know, management free, promotion free, sometimes trainer free, you know, just kind of getting those phone calls um, at middleweight and just taking them. Um, back in 2016, when I won the WBC middleweight world title in New Zealand, um, I had known of Brian Cohen and had dealt with Brian Cohen um, a few times um, for a couple of years now, just being in women's boxing. And he happened to have three champion fights out there as well. And I needed somebody else in the corner and he happened to be there. So I was like, Hey man, can you work my corner? He did. Um, And from there we started keeping in contact as far as helping um, management. I knew he was very successful in women's boxing. And then um, we 
kind of made a deal. And from there, he handled my career management wise. Um, and then fast forward to now, I'm signed with one of the best promoters in the game, Lou DiBella. And, you know, it's funny, I've been in the pro ranks for 13 years, but I feel like my career has gotten kind of like a revamp since the breakfast fight, because I've just, you know, things have really been able to get mapped out for me, which is not yeah. what I have most of my career. So I'm excited. Yeah. I, and it does seem to be sort of a, a distinction between the, the men's and women's games where there seems to be more support on the men's side for, you know, kind of cultivating young talent. It seems like a lot of the women sort of have to find their own way in, you know? Yeah. I mean, I kind of call myself um, self-proclaimed like the middle child of women's boxing because I'm not a veteran veteran yet, but I'm not, you know, brand new into the game. I'm like the J Cole of women's boxing. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm not, I'm, and nowhere near on my way out. Um, I'm very relevant and um, I'm very blessed to actually be in the position that I am now, especially with the talent we have coming in. Like it's a great time for women's boxing and I'm, I'm right dead center in it. So I'm, I'm excited, you know? Yeah, it's definitely, the landscape's definitely changing. Mm. Um, so it's, it's been about nine months since you last fought, right? Yes. Um, then that was your only fight in the past couple of years. I, I know a lot of fighters have dealt with the same thing, uh, COVID, all that. Has it been hard for you? Do you see it as an advantage at this point? Does it make any difference in your mind? I know you said, you know, you're kind of, you're fresh for, for someone your age in the game. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm one of a million fighters out there that had to deal with COVID. And, you know, I had a 15 month layoff before that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I came into that world title fight 15 months off during COVID, one of the hardest years personally for myself and the first time fighting as light as I did. So, you know, on paper, it looks like, you know, all, all odds against me, but I've kind of found solace and um, success in those kind of like pressure and all odds against me situations. As far as, you know, this COVID situation, <clears throat> it's it's been an interesting time you know to try to really find motivation and and be really creative in inspiring myself to really get these workouts and this is my job you know I had this is my full-time job now um as well as other things too but you know I chose this nobody made me do this so I have to you know if I want to do this the right way and to the best of my ability I got to find a way no, no matter what so um it's been interesting um but it's getting a little easier now surprisingly um you know, 2020 was a huge year for women's boxing. And, you know, it kind of like got a huge like push forward with which was really um, exciting to see because it was, you know, 2020, it was like the, you know, the apocalypse. So yeah. um, really excited to see, you know, these promoters pushing boxing in at, at all, but especially women's boxing. I was really excited to see that. Yeah. Yeah. It would, it would not looking back, it, it's sort of unexpected at the very least. Um, so you, you're a, you're a native American woman and, and you seem to fully embrace your heritage just from everything I've seen and heard. Um, are there ways that you have tried to bring that into the ring or through promotions or just certain messages that you're trying to put out into the world through boxing? Absolutely. You know, I'm very proud, um, mixed indigenous woman being Cape Verdean and indigenous Wampanoag from the Wampanoag Nation. Um, you know, it's been an interesting journey, life journey for just myself as being, you know, biracial, two-spirited. It's always, I've never really found my footing personally. Um, boxing was that time where I find found my identity and really found um, a purpose within it outside of myself. So, you know, incorporating who I am and who I'm very, very proud to be, all of me, um, finally, is very, very important for me to, you know, put my culture my heritage and us as a people that you know the quote-unquote forgotten race 
or on the voting ballots, we were something else. You know, it's really important for me to get indigenous people, Native Americans, us, the original people of Americas, the original people of Turtle Island, to recognize that we're still here. We're not like dinosaurs. It's not in the past. We don't live in teepees. We have real jobs. We do real things. And we are still here fighting the same fight that our ancestors did. Missing and murdered indigenous women are as one um, epidemic that has been plaguing our people, not just our women, since the dawn of time, since colonizers first laid their, their feet on this land. So, you know, you say that to a lot of people and they don't know what MMIW means, and it should be something that's in the mainstream media and it's not. So if I'm in a front of a group of people, um, i.e. boxing, that don't know about this and I have a voice for the voice list, absolutely, I'm going to make sure that I speak on it, that and many other issues as often as I can to just try to bring awareness. Awareness can lead to change. And what is that? You mentioned it, MMIW? Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that. So I, I and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to double back around to that in a moment, because I know there's a lot more there. Um, but you mentioned the Cape Verdean side of your, uh, of your heritage. Yes. I, I mean, I, I like to think of myself as being fairly worldly, but I'll be honest, I don't know anything about Cape Verdean. Give me a, give me a little quick uh, lesson. I will give you a quick lesson. So Cape Verdean is a cluster of islands, about five islands off the west coast of Africa. Cape Verde um, was basically like a slave port, just like Bermuda was. And the you know slave trade from Portugal and Spain would basically use that as a stop and kind of dump slaves in that on those islands and kind of keep it keep it trucking. So Cape Verde is kind of like a um you, you can get into like a real political battle about this, but it's like a black Portuguese, honestly. Mm. Um, the, the language that we we speak, I can't even say we because I only know a couple of words, but <laughs> it's more or less like a, it sounds Brazilian slash Portuguese. So if you understand Portuguese, you'll kind of understand Cape Verdean. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know a lot about my Cape Verdean background. I was brought up as just being, you know, native, a black native, knowing I was Cape Verdean, especially being from New England. It's huge in Massachusetts, Rhode Island and Connecticut. People will know what Cape Verdean is. Okay. Past Connecticut, <clears throat> nobody knows what that is. So <laughs> if you look on a map or you Google it, you'll see it's a little cluster of islands, teeny tiny islands off the West Coast of Africa. And um you know, I come from Sauni Cloud and Brava. Those are my two islands that I come from personally. And the heritage there is amazing. You know what I mean? It's it's very prominent. And like I said, in New England, and um, if you really dig down deep to the history of Cape Verde, you know, you, you can find traces of Senegal, Somalian. There's just because of where those islands are and because it was used as a slave trade port, um, we're kind of just mixed with everything. And we created our own race on those islands. And that's been what I am. And being from um, the East Coast and um, being Wampanoag and Cape Verdean, you know, I have ancestors that were in Bermuda that were taken as slaves from my Wampanoag side to Bermuda or to, to uh, Portugal or Spain or dumped on Cape Verde. The, my um, lineage goes very, very deep and very, very rich. Wow. So, I mean, you kind of alluded to it a little earlier, but just with all the, with, with the kind of diversity of background, but then also like quite a bit of you know, oppression and, 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 you know, hardship in your background, are there, what, what are those specific ways that you feel like your heritage has influenced your life and, and maybe even your personality, who you are? Well, you know, there's been a lot of times I know as kids, you know, we all go through those weird stages where we might be angry, might be depressed or not, but there's something um, really prominent about genetic genocide. You know, energy is transferable from parents to the kids and just from generation to generation. And, you know, 
indigenous peoples, no matter what land you go on, there's indigenous people of that land. We've been so suppressed for so long. It's in our DNA, it's in our genes. It's been passed down. These thought patterns have been passed down. These emotions have been passed on through DNA. Um, so, you know, I find myself now that I'm learning and just trying to really grow and, and try to unpack these things and really know what these emotions or feelings may have come from. Um, you know, there used to be times where I just had had this mentality of, you know, I'm just here and I'm sorry for existing. Not in so many words, but it really dawned on me when I started going from communities to, to different communities and reservations, just kind of doing a little bit motivational speaking and sharing my story where without any spoken words, I could tell that the people from lands I'd never even been to had that same type of mentality at times where we're sorry for existing because that's what we got told for so long, generation for gener generation. There's so much healing that needs to be done with our people. And there, you know, it's, there's things that are coming to light between residential school kids being un, uh, found in these unmarked graves um, from these pipelines being uh, dug through, um, you know, sacred lands, breaking treaties. These things are all coming to surface. And the more awareness and the more truths that are being exposed, the better it is for us as a people to heal and, you know, stop really being down on ourselves and, and understanding where all that comes from. So, you know, um, I'm the youngest of five kids. I have, we're a mixed family. I got, you know, um, I, my mom has two kids. My dad had five kids. There's a bunch of us, but um, my heritage just being so connected with mother earth and being so spiritual. Um, that's where I found myself being myself the most, even though I was so misunderstood as a kid, you know, I was the only native kid around the neighborhood. I had these braid ties and thick glasses and but they thought I was Cape Verdean, but they thought I was black or Spanish. I was never black enough. I was never Native American enough. I was never Cape Verdean enough. I was just kind of just stuck in this, my own little lane. Um, and surprisingly, the most racism I've ever gotten from any other race was in fact from other Native Americans that were either mixed with white or from like Midwestern tribes or just didn't understand where I came from as a Northeast Woodland native woman. And um, it's, it's funny that we are from the first contact tribes being Wampanoag Nation, the Shinnecock Nation, the Narragansett Nation, um, the Mashantucket. We are from the first contact tribe. So we were damn near wiped out. So the fact that I even know where I come from and who I come from is like a miracle. So there's yeah. been a lot of unpacking as a kid, you know, it was just really confusing. Oh, I would imagine so. I mean, even, even when the, the lines are a little bit clearer, there's maybe fewer, uh, fewer branches on the family tree, so to speak, like it, it can get really complicated. But you, what you're, I mean, that's a hell of a place to come from what you just said, as far as apologizing for existing, because then there's the flip side of that, where, you know, we see it, we see it every day. There are people who have every entitlement and, and will never let you forget it. They're coming from a place yeah. where, you know, they, they've, they've already got their boot on your neck. So it's, it makes it tough if you're starting from that, that spot, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. I never really understood it either. Like, I just didn't understand why I felt like I had to like, almost like put my head down, like literally and figuratively and kind of just, you know, okay, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't understand why, you know, I've been through a lot, just like everybody has, you know, I come from a single parent household. My father was in and out. Um, it was just it's so much, you know, so many layers to it, but just to kind of unpack that because I saw some common, and I felt common energy from people I've never met kind of started helping me understand like where that comes from and what we as indigenous hurting people need to do. Um, 
and with the platform that I, I've built and with the attention I get from being a fighter, a very good accomplished fighter now um, from the Native community is just finding motivation and hope in me of what I do. And just the fact that I'm, you know, on HBO having coming out to a powwow song and having dancers and showing my heritage, that's like, that's awesome. You don't see that. Us yeah. as Native American people, we don't see ourselves represented in mainstream media. So if people can find motivation in that, um, man, take all the belts from me. I don't, that doesn't mean anything to me as much as if when I get that, you know, email inbox from that kid that was contemplating suicide because they were ashamed of being mixed indigenous and black or whatever, but they saw me and they saw how positive I am and I'm relatable and it gave them hope. You know what? That is worth 10 times more than any kind of belt or money or anything. Um, that's why I do what I do. It's way bigger than me. And you've gotten one of those before an email like that? Oh, I've gotten uh, countless amounts of inboxes, emails from parents, from kids. Um, I've speak, spoken to kids on the phone. I, it's like, I can't even, I can't even count how many times <laughs> I've gotten those types of messages from, from even adults uh, on, you know, about how they can't stop drinking and they, they just need help right now. And they just see me as a positive person. And I, for whatever they see in me, it's something. Yeah. Um, so I got to keep doing it. Well, that kind of leads into the the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is, um, you know, not to overshadow your upcoming fight, but you've got another big endeavor kind of coming down the pike here. It's your film, uh, Catch the Fair One, which won a Tribeca Film Festival Audience Award. Um, has a lot of the, from what I understand, it has a lot of the themes that kind of we're talking about right now. And, and then even considering representation, it's such a big deal. And, and you mentioned the idea of there not being a lot of uh, indigenous representation in the media, but, and, and when there is, oftentimes it's either misrepresented or it's, you know, in a, in a negative form. Tell me, uh, tell me about the movie and, and your involvement in it. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's funny that you say that because, you know, every time you see any kind of Native American or indigenous person represented in a film or in mainstream media, it's like those typical roles, or you don't see like a Native actor that's like in a Marvel movie, like as a main character superhero that doesn't get killed off in the first five minutes, you know right. what I mean? Um, it's, just, it's, it's, it's really interesting because it's like Indian country and Native American world or indigenous, however you want to identify us. We know our issues, but everybody else doesn't. And they're huge, really affecting issues that affect like human life. Um, so how I even got involved with this film was, it's, this has been a long project. Um, Joseph had reached out to me, which is the director of Catch the Fan One, which is now one of my really good friends. I'm um, back, <clears throat> excuse me, back in 2017. Um, he was just getting into boxing. He ran across my Instagram profile, told me who he was and asked me if I was ever interested in, in acting. And as you can imagine, at that point, I've gotten countless amounts of, hey, I, I'm this director. I'd love you to act in a movie kind of a thing for just from knowing me from boxing. So he actually checked out. And uh, long story short, he ended up going up to Rhode Island. We got to know each other. I read his script. Now he was just getting into um, really learning about missing and murdered indigenous women and what the impact was and just how big the, the epidemic is. So we had a kind of like a bare bones script about a woman who loses somebody that's close to her. Um, and it was kind of based around on um, the highway of tears in Canada. And after he got to know me and kind of knew my story and was really intrigued on the way I was trying to bring awareness to different issues such as this one with my boxing. Um, 
he just really dug down deep and started rewriting things, asking me questions. And really early on started, he, he asked me to be a creative collaborator in creating this entire story. Um, he even sat down with some of my elders from my tribe, wanted to really know my perspective as an indigenous woman. And um, this was over like a four year process where he, um, I got to really work on my character, on the other characters in the films, the themes in the films that were really important. I would share with him when I would go to different communities um, and learn other stories and other organizations, just kind of give him perspectives. And um, we ended up four years later, finally getting this thing um, shot. And I had a huge involvement in kind of like from start to finish, you know, investors to down to like colors represented in the film. I got to see casting videos um, of people auditioning. And then, you know, it's still surreal that all this ended up being what it is now. And I couldn't have asked for a better outcome, even though we, we shot in 2019, right before things closed up, yeah. about two weeks before things closed up and, and um, for the whole pandemic. Um, so we had we were supposed to premiere or supposed to start going on the uh, film festival circuit in 2020, but it was a blessing because we got to really dissect in post production. It's usually it's a, a mad rush, but we right. got to sit down and talk and you know send this cut and watch it and then have a discussion over weeks of time and then come up with another idea, try something else, didn't work. We had so much time. At first we were panicking, like, oh my God, things are shutting down. The world's going to blow up. Oh, this is never going to ever going to come out. We did this for nothing. Oh my God. Panicking. Two Virgos panicking. And um, <laughs> it was crazy, but I couldn't have asked for a better outcome. It, everything is happening how it should. And what we ended up with is, is a powerful, powerful story. Um, it was my first time acting. Um, you know, I put my all just like I do in my box and I kind of put that whole um, you know, all or nothing approach I have with my training into this acting and just want to get the best performance out of myself and tell this story, very necessary story that needs to be told that needs to just have eyes on this issue is this is a real problem. And if yeah. we can do it through a, a, a genre thriller film that's going to get people asking questions, then that's what I want. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I love that you were, you know, the 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 acting role is, is obviously, you know, you're out front in, in, in a place where everyone can see you and that's a prominent prominent part of the movie but the fact that you're a co-writer on the on the film is a big deal i i'm i'm interested a little bit because in boxing there there are a lot of people who believe that fans writers commentators can't speak critically about fighters or the sport unless they've been in the ring themselves i i think that's silly but there is a perspective that most of those folks will never have it's just it's just something that you have to be in the ring to experience. And that is totally worth trying to capture. And I, I kind of think about that from the perspective of, of your heritage and, and the native side of things, your deep involvement in the movie from a writing perspective, how, how important do you feel it is that native Americans and indigenous peoples are able to tell their own stories? I think um, it is an, it's probably one of the best things and most important things for us to be able to tell our stories because like I said earlier this is how we start to begin to heal we can get these stories out whether it's a good story bad story and also storytelling is how we used to pass down 
um, recipes, stories of creation, any kind of story. We didn't have Facebook and, and Instagram back in, you know, you know, 1700s. If there was something that you want to pass down to your lineage, to your line, if you was a grandma that had a bunch of grandbabies, you want to leave something with them. It was storytelling, verbally just saying stuff or songs or anything like that. So now in the day we live in, obviously we have technology and everything. So storytelling, especially through film or poetry or even music, art, is really important for us um, because we, I personally, I, I can't speak for every indigenous native person out there, but telling this story, it's not even like my personal, it's a story that we created on based on real, real things. Um, it's, it was cathartic even acting in this movie and just telling this story. I think it's really important for us to, to tell stories so people can recognize everything is kind of like, especially when American history is out of sight, out of mind, you know, what you see here, look at, look at the shiny thing right here. This is what America is based on, but they seem to forget what this country and what a lot of countries were based on genocide. You know what I mean? And yeah. um, not to, you know, get all real political. I don't hate white people and all anything like that. It's just what this was, this, what this country and what we are now, what it was really built on. I mean, for God's sakes, the constitution still says merciless Indian savages. That's in our shit today. That's crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, another example is back where I live in Providence, Rhode Island, there was a law that was um, abolished in either the late 1990s or early 2000s that had stated um, if you were Wampanoag, which is who I am and what I am and from the nation I come from, and you state out loud that you are Wampanoag in the city of Providence, Rhode Island, you could be killed on the spot. Get out. That I, you can look it up. No, that no. law was abolished when I was alive. So if somebody knew that and just wanted to be in, you know, people know what laws are. And, they, and I said I was Wampanoag, anybody said it, and they offed them on the spot. They could have got away with that. The I fact mean, that that, just the idea that, that, that there's something there on paper that's still allowed to sort of float out there. I mean, that's just, that's stunning. Yeah. Yeah. So when we, when any, any, I mean, any group of people, any, any group of people that have gotten oppressed in any way, if they're allowed to actually be heard, I know me personally, when I am heard, you don't have to agree with me, but as long as I'm heard and what my perspective is heard and understood, I feel better. I feel like I got it out. Now we can start healing instead of holding it in. We're told that we have to stay silent. We can't say anything, you know? So I'm a voice for the voiceless and we just got to keep telling our stories. People don't want to listen. They're going to have to listen eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, oftentimes people, maybe they don't come around right away. Maybe they need to hear different versions. They need to hear it, you know, needs to hit them over in waves over time. Um, but it just, usually it's the, you know, what is it? The, uh, you know, the arc of the universe, like just, I, I have a positive feeling that things are going in the right direction slowly, but surely. Um, but it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't serve any of us to, wipe anything under the you know under the rug and not tell those stories even if they're tough to face you know yeah i mean it's all quote unquote water under the bridge but i think that we're starting to flood over now you can't you <laughs> been under the bridge for so long and um yeah i mean it's just things are gonna people start, start to deny things so much that it's just it's a hard truth yeah it's just hard truth well, I, so this is a little bit of a personal question, but it's more, I think it, you know, something everybody can kind of learn from, you know, there, there are some somewhat similar stories that are being told or have been told, um, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, coming out a little bit later this year, uh, Scorsese, white guy, 
um, there's there's a movie I saw not long ago, uh, Wind River, which was written mm -hmm. and directed yep. by Taylor Sheridan, came out in 2017. Sheridan, white guy. Yep. Um, and, you know, I'll say this. As someone with a pretty stubborn sense of fairness, I want these stories to be told. I desperately want them to be told. And as a writer, I love telling them. But as a white guy, is it is it my place? Like is and and I'm just curious your opinion because I I, I struggle with it sometimes. No, I mean, and I I appreciate that question. That question needs to be asked because you know this kind of goes in the same line with people like yourself. What white people come up to me? Well, I want to I want to help. Am I allowed to help? Absolutely. We need our stories to be told. We need help in certain areas. So having non-indigenous people, having non-natives help is absolutely so because y'all need to know you know what i mean but as far as writing and telling the story personally i think and not just only i'm not saying this only because it was me the the approach that joseph took with this because he wrote this you know and i helped write this i had a very heavy hand in, in writing this but he physically wrote this um he 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 was struggling with it because he's a Japanese Polish guy, you know what I mean? That, yeah, that I saw that. That that to yeah. me was interesting as well. Yeah. So I mean, he took the approach with with making sure through me, somebody that had a perspective, that he was doing it the right way. Yeah. Um, if he would have came to me, hey, I got this script, read it, want you to act in it, and wasn't asking me as an indigenous person, or even if I wasn't, it wasn't asking. If you're trying to tell a group, but even if it was something about, you know, Haitian people, you should be going to ask those people and tell this stories. How would you tell yours? How do you want your story to be told? So yeah. I think if you have that approach where you don't just write something on, on a thought and on an assumption, but you do the due diligence of doing the research and really asking those group of people how this how they want their story to be told absolutely i mean if you if you're a writer and you have a group of people that don't know how to physically write something or can't put their thoughts in paper and you're there to assist absolutely yeah absolutely yeah no that's good to know it's what like i said it's one of those things that you know you go back and forth with i've i've heard both sides of it and i, I don't know exactly where i fall i just know i mean i am somebody i think who wants to help and I am somebody who is won over by compelling stories. So I'm kind of, I get stuck in the middle sometimes. Oh, and I, I can't even imagine, like, I, 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 I feel for people when they ask me stuff like that. Cause I'm like, I totally understand. But, you know, when people ask questions like that, personally, and again, I can't speak for every indigenous person, but we find it as a, as a sign of respect. Like it's, it, I have, like if I wear a medallion or something that has, it's really pretty, it's beaded. When people just reach for my stuff, instead of asking me to, to oh, okay, do you mind? Then I have a lot of respect. Sure, here you go, you can, but if you're just reaching in the pot to grab stuff, like especially uh -huh. for writing a story, that's disrespectful. Right. You know, if you approach something with respect and you ask permission, you're either gonna get a yes or a no. And at least you acknowledge that this is not your thing to tell or touch, you know right. what I mean? No, that's, that's, that's a great comparison. Um, all right. I, I do a little thing here called rapid fire. So I'm just going to throw out some questions and, uh, and, you know, have Adam, uh, what's, what's the hardest punch you've ever taken? Um, overhand right from Michaela Loren at two in the morning in Spain with them little gloves that weren't certified by the commission. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, besides any screenings of catch the fair one, what's the last movie you saw? Oh, what did I watch? I have no idea <laughs> what I watched. I know what the last thing I, uh, it was a show, it was a documentary, it's called Screwball on, on, Screwball on Netflix. It was about uh, Tony Bosch and steroid use of the MLB. 
<laughs> really? Okay. I'm going to have to yes. check that one out. It was uh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Uh, any pets? Any pets? Any pets? I have a dog named Wampum. She's six years old and she's a uh, bully, bully pit. Okay. And a dog named Cassius, but he passed away. Ah, uh, okay. I thought I saw a couple of dogs on on your on your social media and photos. So, okay. Yeah, um, Cassius. Um, he passed away last year. He was my little boy. He was my camp buddy. So. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you would you go camping? No, like my fight camp. I would. Oh, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> I'll bring bring him or her to my fight camp. Got it. That makes sense. Um, tell tell us something about your tribe that most listeners won't know. The Wampanoag Nation is made up of about nine clans, and we are the tribe that America celebrates the first Thanksgiving. So Wampanoag Nation is actually the tribe that America does a screwed up holiday, and um, you know it's all happy and stuff. But the Wampanoag Nation is that tribe. So as a follow up, tell me a little more about the feelings of the tribe towards Thanksgiving, and and what what should be done instead. Um, I'm not going to tell, and I'm not one of those that tell people how to celebrate or how to mourn or how to whatever. Um, as a kid, you know, I always just saw it as a time to get together with family and celebrate family, the fact that we're here. You know what I mean? We obviously would acknowledge the fact that um, it was a day of mourning. A lot of us call it the day of mourning. And as I got older and understood it a little bit better, um, I don't tell people like you should, you know, not eat and you, you do what you do, but just educate yourselves on the, exactly what really happened and um, just respect it. Um, For me, when I am back home in Rhode Island, um, we go to uh, Massachusetts, we have like a ceremony just acknowledging our ancestors and the fact that we're still here. So I can't tell anybody how to celebrate or how not to celebrate. Yeah, and I mean, I think things like that, a lot of times they're different things to different people, but I think just you describing that, you know, a day of mourning, Mm. that's, that should be pretty powerful to everyone. Everybody should understand the associations there and like i think you said just respecting that there's a there's a much deeper and darker meaning to it than just sitting around the table eating turkey with your family so yeah i think it should i mean if i had control of the world i would love for the school system to teach the real history instead of cutting out uh you know construction paper feathers and pilgrim hats and telling these bogus stories because that's that needs to be changed if i could say anything that the history real history if they want to teach any history teach the real history teach what really happened with slavery teach what really happened with native americans teach the real history of america and let people and kids make up their own mind yeah and that's i think that's what i was talking about earlier is we're in a tough place right now where there has been pushback on on education and there's this there's this weird concern about framing america as you know the the saviors and the the you know we're the good guys and it's you know it doesn't it doesn't take a lot you don't have to pop open a lot of books to realize that's not us it's not who we are uh and you you're not going to get better by by not learning from your past mistakes exactly you can't act like things didn't happen act like it happened and don't let it happen again yeah yeah um so you you know we talked about this a little bit earlier you you mentioned that you know you kind of you're, you're in that, you're in that sweet spot, but you are 34 years old. You're, you're probably a little closer to the end of your athletic arc than the beginning. Can't do this forever. Do you have plans to do more acting or, or more screenwriting or anything else? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, I had my hand at commentating and I love it too. So that's, I've always thought of 
life after boxing or life during boxing or other things other than boxing. I absolutely love it like right now. And I want to take advantage of um, how I feel and the team and the opportunities I do have. But when I first started, I didn't give myself past. I don't want to box past like 36, 37, because I kind of followed other careers. I know for females, it's a little longer, but um, not with these girls coming out of the Olympics. I'm good. <laughs> I'm going to be retired, <laughs> but I definitely do have plans on acting again. You know, we have, I have a whole team now for that and I fell in love with it. And like I said, bo- like you said, boxing is like a very, very short, you know, short shelf life. So if I can't bring awareness with my boxing platform, you know, doing these other actings, doing films that, and writing things that really mean something to me and also just honing on, on this talent that I found that I have that I didn't know I had um, with this acting, I absolutely want to see where this can take me. And you might be seeing, you know, me being like a superhero or something. I don't know. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Like you said, the your first Native American super and not like you said, not dying in the first scene. Yes. Suicide squad. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you, you, I, I think you have a future in, uh, in commentate. I mean, you, you speak extemporaneously really well. I mean, you thank you very just, much I appreciate that. just this exchange uh i i think you know not not like i'm uh i'm the guy to to uh do all the evaluating on that but uh i, I think there's a, there's a future there if you want to oh yeah absolutely i mean it was it's really fun and um my my promoter lou Bella hooked me up with a few right um and actually the guys who are commentating my fight were upset that i'm fighting because I, I i commentated with them last time and they're like oh man you're not gonna be with us i'm like well you guys get to call my fight i don't know what to tell you <laughs> well i mean you could do the undercard right and then just like hop into the ring i told them i was like just give me one of those headphone things and I'll be in the <laughs> while you fight <laughs> yeah i'll commentate my own fight. <laughs> um well okay so you so you've got a you got a fight to go win in the meantime uh it's friday at the Siquan casino resort and El Cajon, California, um, your super lightweight title defense against Diana Prozic, the main event, right? Yes, yes, I yeah. can't wait for the stacked card. I can't wait for the whole card. can't wait to fight. Like I said, um, chance to defend, chance to unify in this 140-pound division is hot right now. Everybody wants to be undisputed, so I'm in the mix of it. Let's go. Let's dance, Diana. Let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> well, I know you can't give away all your strategy, but broadly, what are you? What are going to be the keys for you in this matchup? I mean, obviously, she's older than me. She hasn't fought in over four years, um, seven years. She just came back to boxing. Um, you know, I'm bigger. I'm naturally bigger. I was a 160-pound fighter for most of my career. I'm bigger. I'm stronger. I'm faster. I, I'm more skilled than she is. I've gotten better. Um, but she is tough. She can crack, and she is relentless. And she comes forward. She doesn't stop. She has heart. And she was a, a former champion for a reason. So, you know, I'm the bigger fighter. So I plan to use my, my, my size. I have a tremendous jab that I've discovered in the last couple of years. So I plan on doing that, breaking her down and, you know, trying to end it early and just protecting myself at all times. Cause I don't, yeah, I want to speak good for the rest of rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's hope so. Let's hope you, yeah, I wish you good health. Uh, this is great, Kaylee. I, I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate your time. This was awesome. I like your questions. It wasn't any you know, generic stuff. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, that's usually where I try to go. You know, we can always, we can always, everybody can always talk boxing, but uh, you know, the the other stuff is is really what's more important. And and I I find I get a lot of interesting stuff from from fighters that you know people don't ask them this stuff often enough. So um, I just always got cool stories, man. Well, you've, got a, you've got a ton to say. I mean, there's you've got this incredible background that um, 
that you're willing to share. I think that's a gift to everyone. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And hopefully you get to see the movie. I, I absolutely will. I'm, I'm going to make a point of it. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we got distribution um, with IFC Films, so it should be in theaters next year. I saw that, IFC. So do you, do you know, will it be um, distributed uh, streaming on any particular platform? Um, I'm not sure the details yet. I do know that we're going to do a theater um, premiere and a okay. theater distribution. So, but I'm sure they're going to collab with some kind of streaming. And, you know, these days you guys, all you need is a fire stick. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but um, well, I'll keep you guys updated though. Yeah, please do. Please do. Good luck with, with all of it. Good luck with the acting. Good luck with the fight this weekend and, um, and stay safe. And, and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, as, as, as soon as I uh, win that belt, call me back. <laughs> I will. I will. Thank you, Kaylee. It's been a pleasure. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, man, it's good to be back. That was great. I mean, seriously, what a conversation. Uh, you know, I like talking boxing as much as the next person, but, um, you know, it's the stuff that happens in between, the stuff that leads these fighters into the ring draws them to the sport in the first place, sometimes forces them there. Um, that's that's the stuff that really makes these conversations worth having that's interesting to me, uh, kind of gets me going. Hopefully it does you too. Uh, anyhow, appreciate, uh, appreciate Kaylee coming on with us. Kaylee Reese, who defends her super lightweight title against Diana Prozac on Friday, August 20th. If you can check that out, please do. Uh, be sure to track down Catch the Fair One, which Kaylee stars in and co-wrote after its release. In the meantime, consider checking out and supporting Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA. I'm going to go ahead and drop a link in the show notes for you to get there directly. Uh, Just check it out. Do what you can to support uh, the cause. And um, just let's all educate ourselves, you know. Not remotely as important, but if you'd like to support Ringtones, follow us on all the coolest social media channels, and be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Now, I I have no doubt all of your friends are listening to Ringtones religiously, and I mean, you can't afford to have them making fun of you because you're not. Just looking out for you. Uh, Besides, it's free. Come back, find out what the next great guest is we're going to have. Um that who I somehow convinced to to join the pod and spill their guts. Until next time.